You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I am your host, Nicholas Rapold. With this week's episode, we're going to try something a little different on the podcast. I've had so much fun talking with friends about the movies we've been watching that I'd like to do a little more. So after our usual discussion of movies that are new to us, I will be digging into a special topic with a guest or two. Sometimes that might be a movie or director I feel strongly about, Other times, it'll be a story about something different, or maybe an interview. My background is in journalism and magazines, so maybe you could call this an audio magazine. But enough introduction, I'm just excited to see how it evolves, and I'm glad to have you with me. And now, let's talk about some movies. First, I'll be discussing highlights from the New York Film Festival with two terrific critics, Beatrice Loiza and Susanna Gruder. And then on our second half, I'll talk about the unique situation facing the film industry during the pandemic and what the future could hold with my guest, Eric Hines of the Museum of the Moving Image. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is a discussion of movies we've been watching recently. And in this case, we'll be talking about some new releases, but also just movies that we all feel should be in the forefront of discussion now. Joining me on this journey, two excellent critics I'm very pleased to have. We'll start first uh, with a return, just to prove that people actually want to come back and talk after (laughs) being subjected to this. And that is Beatrice Loiza. Hello. Welcome. Yes, I am happy to be here once again. Yes, you've been uh, working, keeping up with uh, the New York Film Festival. Indeed. And also joining us is uh, a critic I've, I've read a lot of, and that is Susanna Gruder. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You're also New York Film Festival uh, goer, virtually, remotely. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been going well. I have been enjoying watching the films from home, um, maybe not being as diligent in some respects as I would have been had I been at the Walter Reed, but also catching some things that I might not have been able to see. Let's talk about uh, what we've been seeing. One movie that I think was given a certain, uh, a little extra push as a filmmaker to watch. That movie is Beginning by a Georgian filmmaker. Dea Kulumbegashvili. Nice. There's actually a line in the movie where some, like an a British person, is talking to one of the Georgian people, and he's like, "Sorry, what's your last name?" And he goes, "Don't worry about it. It's too long to explain." <laughs> <laughs> Do one of you want to um, lay out the outlines of, of the story of the movie? Sure. It follows a congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses in Georgia, which which is a a religious minority there and sort of starts with um, how they're being persecuted. It starts with an extremely confrontational scene that I won't describe because it is shocking and you should experience that without prior knowledge. But it sort of ends up following the wife of the head of this congregation. She's experiencing some sort of mental unrest and it's not really explained what's going on. Um, and she has just a series of strange episodes with men, but specifically with a, a detective who is not necessarily on the side of justice. <laughs> um, 
it's a very it's a it's a bizarre film it's hard to describe in terms of plot even though it's very simple but it just sort of follows her as she has these interactions and she finds herself drawn to nature in a lot of ways and it's sort of just about her journey of discovering her own religious faith and also like questioning her relationship with authority figures and also her relationship with her son and the children that she teaches at like Sunday school. There are these long stretches in the movie where I couldn't decide if they were serene or unbearably tense Mm -hmm. where she's, you know, as you say, she's kind of engaging with, with nature, but at the same time, a lot of those sequences feel like recovery from just the combination of daily life and, and also just specific trauma that is inflicted upon her. These events keep intruding upon her attempts to carve out a space for herself. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, there's this, you know, durational difficulty to the film. You know, these long extended shots that have this dreamy quality to them. Um, and, and yet, as you said, Nick, there, there is this tension, especially with the sort of intrusions that come into the frame from the outside, which most effectively plays out with uh, this scene of violence that that Susanna was referring to. Yeah, I mean, this is not an original thought. Um, A lot of people have discussed these two references in relation to the film, but, you know, it has a very Chantal Ackerman quality. There's a direct reference to to Jean Diamène in in this uh, final scene that takes place in the kitchen. And um, with it being about a cloistered religious community, um, Carlos Regada's Silent Light comes to mind. Um, mm. uh, I think Regadas is also an executive producer on the film. <laughs> um, but, but I think that those comparisons are apt, um, though I, I think that the director has a bit of prankster-ish touch to her that kind of breaks the mold of like the typical art house austerity. I can't quite put my finger on it just yet. Um, it's, it's a very difficult film. And honestly, I w- I'd like to rewatch it knowing what happens at the end. But it's a very gorgeous film. And I very much look forward to to revisiting it. Yeah. And that's that's an interesting um, comparison from the Regattas, especially because in the Regattas films, or you know, a number of them, especially the most recent one, it's so very much from a male perspective <laughs> to the extent of just becoming this weird grotesque of machismo. Yeah, so in this, it's 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 very interesting to explore that style. I, you know, just thinking about it in terms of these art house tropes, those so often seem to be like a, a badge of authenticity. <laughs> you know, the durational aspect you mentioned and just kind of inflicting violence on the viewer with some sort of surprise or twist to it. I, I wonder if you could talk more about this prankster side, because I'm curious about what you're talking about there. So, you know, it introduces this biblical story in the beginning about, you know, the story of Abraham and Isaac. And it seems to kind of challenge the usual reading of, of that story. Just some of the its elements, like the magical realist elements, especially in the very end, mm-hmm. makes me feel like they're like the director is I don't know, like really striking out further in places where other directors might have actually fallen back on like a cheaper sort of ambiguity. Mm. Mm -hmm. So so maybe prankster is not the correct word, but there's a bit more of a playfulness, I think, there that is opens up the film to more meaning. 
Yeah, there's a few moments where it would do well with repeat viewings where you're like, wait, did I see that? correctly or yeah like was that person like someone will jump to like a completely different location without you seeing them and it's like physically impossible um or something and and it's it does sort of make you question whether or not because I it's also hard to watch at home because I found that if you look away for one second you'll miss something (laughs) like these you think like oh it's a you know 10 minute shot I I can look away but I actually did watch it twice and found that I I had looked away at the wrong point. Yes, totally me too. Right? <laughs> How did it strike you when, when you watched it a second time? It was way more about light for me the second time. Like I was wondering why hmm. she would shoot, you know, the photo that is on like all of the press material is, you know, the, the main character, Yana, lying in a field and... That is, that's kind of like a center of the story in a way. Like, so I was like, okay, this is important (laughs) when that came on. And I didn't really notice anything the first time. And then the second time I just was like watching the way that the light moved across her face and the way that the light changed. And then it, for a second, it looked like, I was like, is she levitating or am I just looking at it for too long? And then (laughs) I was like, she, she, she looked really comfortable to me the first time I watched it. And then she looked completely uncomfortable the second time. Also, I mean, just the light in the film is so interesting. It's shot almost like chiaroscuro, like it's super dark in a lot of in mm. a lot of parts of the frame, and then there'll be like a beam of strange, like neon green light or something that's like hitting a character, like as if it's almost like a divine light shining on them. Mm. And then it it has all the you know, beautiful static shots of nature that, that feel, I don't know. I, it reminded me, I saw the references that, that have been mentioned. I don't know if anyone's mentioned Tarkovsky, but um, obviously, I mean, just the way that Mm. nature kind of has this magical power to it and seeing like people become small in the vastness of it. And then also like just the importance of fire, durational fire that reminded (laughs) me of like the sacrifice. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that seems to be such a, that, that scene in the sacrifice just seems to be some sort of, I don't know, like skeleton key to Mm -hmm. (laughs) as, as a lot of other scenes in Tarkovsky are, but something about that, that's like a demonstration of, of something that just seems to have continued to echo for so many filmmakers. And I don't know, fi- with fire, I also always think of Hollis Frampton's nostalgia. Uh, it's funny, you mentioned the um, publicity still in terms of beginning. It just occurred to me where I was feeling that was an echo and blissfully yours, uh, just to bring in another canonical uh, filmmaker. It makes me think of that publicity still. Probably the only publicity still that is prominently featured in Armpit. Um, one of the characters just staring up with kind of dappled light um, on her on her back in a field as well. Mm. I don't know if there's anything more we want to add. Oh, I was just going to mention, I think, isn't this her debut film? Yeah, it's her debut feature. She's okay. Yes. Two shorts that I know of that both deal with similar themes. Mm. Um, both have like uh, women being coerced into, into things and the seemingly situations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to avoid uh, discussing that also in terms of spoilers. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, whatever you feel comfortable talking about, this is where, you know, I, I guess we know it's a police officer. Yeah, well, it's tricky. Like, you know, I don't think we can say anything for sure. Yeah. 
person claiming to be a, a police officer visits her at home uh, alone and it becomes a scene of yeah abuse that is all an exercise of, mm. of force on, on many different levels. That's also a scene that I think she kind of reworks uh, also the way she, she frames it by sometimes the intruder being off screen, sometimes being on screen. Yeah, there's there's a lot of off-screen dialogue um, that is it it has like some weird horror elements mm. for me. Yeah, very eerie, not knowing who's speaking or where they are. Yeah, it's intensely um, disturbing. The sense of quiet in that scene is is also just terrifying. Mm. That sense of being in a house uh, completely alone without any recourse. Yeah, that is horror movie ish. So that is uh, Beginning. Um, and another movie that was also in the festival is a kind of uh, revival. And that's a movie that, Susanna, you saw actually had an interesting connection. Or, or I wonder if you could describe that. Yeah. I mean, just the scene that you were describing in, in Beginning is a, a woman being visited at home by a mysterious man who she may or may not be authority figure really reminds me of the last 30 minute scene iconic 30 minute scene in smooth talk which is uh joyce chopra's 1985 film that stars a super young laura dern she said she was 15 when she was cast and i think she was 18 when it came out so she's like a baby and um it's based on a joyce carol oates story from the 60s which is based on a real-life serial killer. But that's not super clear from the movie. The movie's super ambiguous. I mean, it's basically a coming-of-age story about this girl who just wants to be seen by men and tries to put herself out there in malls and restaurants wearing, like, amazing but skimpy tops. And it just has a lot of the same ambiguity about what the hell happens at the end and she's also visited by a mysterious stranger who really won't leave her alone and this is like this scene is so different from the rest of the film it's also very durational the first two-thirds of the film are super fun and I mean they're all about girls like getting dressed and going out and there's some like mother-daughter tension with Mary Kay Place who delivers like one of the best lines in the movie, maybe the best line, she says to Laura Dern, I look right in your eyes and all I see are a bunch of trashy daydreams, which I just love. The last scene of Smooth Talk differs completely from the rest of the movie. It takes um, a turn for kind of an easygoing, like coming of age story. And it just turns into this like dialogue between Laura Dern and... Treat Williams, who plays um, a very mysterious figure who kind of reminds me of the character from Beginning in that he visits her at home when no one's there. It's very intentional that she's alone. Like she makes a choice to stay at home alone without her family there. It seems odd. And he just sort of enters into her space and it's unclear if he's real. It's unclear who he is. I did a little research on this and there's some factors that lead me to believe that he is not real Hmm. but it's it's awesome and it's it's a super bizarre way to end the film totally i really really love this film and and you know i'm very struck by the ending as well because you know the movie sets out this 
sort of dreamy fantasy of what it means to come of age and enter this phase of adulthood where, you know, as a young woman, you're experiencing and feeling yourself and seeing yourself for the first time as an object of desire. You know, there's this brilliant scene when Laura Dern is looking at herself in the mirror. She has this iconic halter top and she's like really digging herself like the way she looks in this mirror. So there's, you know, this idea of like what male attention means and like the pleasure of all of that colliding with sort of this ugly reality of of male violence or menace in this final act. And it's all quite interesting because in Laura Dern's character's room, she has posters of James Dean, who very much resembles uh, this Arnold Friend character played by Treat Williams. Um, And the way he plays out this character, I I think the Treat Williams performance is actually really, really brilliant as well, because, you know, Laura Dorn is also amazing. But I don't know, he like strikes this weird middle ground between being like a campy caricature of like the dreamboat type in the vein of James Dean but then it's also like you know kind of freaky (laughs) because he's so threatening and uh imposing on her and so that last scene is is really quite remarkable yeah it almost feels like um she summoned him like she wanted it so so bad throughout the film that it he just sort of magically appears and when he does it's pretty it's like vaguely terrifying like at times like he seems totally unthreatening at at certain points I mean he he's like I'm Arthur friend and that's what I want to be to you a friend and I mean that's pretty creepy but like he (laughs) he's like ostensibly like not gonna hurt her or anything and he has this weird friend with him who I thought was a dummy in the car for the first five minutes because he didn't move. <laughs> and I'm like, so I, I don't know. I, this, this scene really reminded me of um, a short story by Shirley Jackson called the demon lover. And I, I went to look at my, my collection and it's like Joyce Carol Oates wrote the introduction and, oh, you know, yeah. So, yeah. And that story is basically about um, a woman who's like running through the streets looking for her fiance, but like there's really no evidence that he actually existed and we're not really sure if he is real or not. And it doesn't tell you and it's super ambiguous. And I, I felt like it really captures, this scene really captures that like that longing, you know, just to be seen and just to be acknowledged to the point where you can like you might invent someone you might invent an imaginary friend Mm -hmm. but he's not I mean he's also it also represents just like the I think in the short story he's actually supposed to be a representation of the devil yeah that's what I heard somewhere yeah like he has hooves or something and it spells it out and it's sort of just about how like no matter what that like first kind of loss of innocence or that first like sexual encounter for a woman is always kind of fraught with violence in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I really, I don't want to say I relate to it now because I'm not really a 
I'm not a teen woman anymore. <laughs> not but really. But I really, <laughs> I um, you know, I do relate to this film a lot. Um, you know, there is that line, you know, when Connie's mother tells her, you know, I look into your eyes and all I see are the trashy dreams. And I like relate to that in my experience with my own mother, because I just feel like almost inexplicably from in, in retrospect, it was like, what did I even want as a teenager? It was like kind of these, you know, just, I mean, I was kind of like a wild teenager and almost inexplicably just sought out situations that were actually quite dangerous and stuff like that. But there was like this weird willing and attraction towards that, that, you know, I can't even explain and I can't even look back on in a happy light anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, you know, the lurid ceremony of, of, of one's coming of age, I think is really depicted so well here. I feel like often in coming of age movies, it's either, you know, kind of more on the innocent side or like really grimy and dark. And this kind of straddles the two in a way that feels more realistic to my experience, but mm-hmm. um, to I'm sure many others as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of like, feeling of omnipotence and like sort of seeking out danger because you feel invincible and then when it actually everyone gets into those situations where they're like oh god like now I'm in trouble like where's my mom like I just (laughs) want my mom and she just wants her mom at the end you know I'm I have you know, very little to nothing to contribute. <laughs> You're just not a teen. Um, you weren't a teen girl at one point, Nick. You don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. But I, I do love this filmmaker. Do you, do you know that movie, Joyce at 34? Yeah, uh, yes. I love that. Wonderful. Yeah, I love that movie too. And, and it's almost like, I'm not saying this is Joyce at, but she it's it's just really capturing something so specific to teenage years. And, and that's something that probably didn't see you know, represented at all in in movies at the time. I mean, you know, 1985, not a time where a movie like this was the one that was receiving the most attention, certainly. Mm. Right. And maybe that's why it sort of fell off and like, hasn't really been held up in that way until now it's getting this, you know, restoration and revival. Yeah. I I had like a night of showing Joyce Chopra's films 10, 12 years ago, and it was wonderful to show them on the big screen and have her there but it was also I I felt kind of annoyed that there weren't more people there you know Mm. but definitely it just shows how you got to keep on um, bringing these movies out Mm. hearing you talk about smooth talk made me think about the next movie Laura Dern was in Blue Velvet Mm. Mm. I was saying that it's like they she plays a really similar character yes (laughs) oh yeah yeah um and it's interesting because when I think about what, you know, Blue Velvet now, it's almost, this is not what happened, or maybe it is, I don't know. It's almost like David Lynch saw Smooth Talk. Yes. And, then, <laughs> was like, and then had to make, then had to make a movie about being the witness to that sort of, to something like that occurring for, you know what I mean? Because Blue Velvet is all about, so much about witnessing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone should ask him. <laughs> he will refuse to answer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it just it just sort of reframes that that movie in a way as well, and, and Smooth Talk preceding this, preceding as well. So it's definitely a watershed. Yeah, I love that. And Laura Dern, yeah, I mean, just I feel like she's like an ongoing like 
wrecking ball to, <laughs> in, in, her, in her career. Totally, yes. Uh, Simone Barbez is another movie that was a, a revived at the festival, a French movie from 1980. That comes to mind a little bit because I also feel like it's showing with just a beautiful specificity experience. Um, right, yeah. So Simone Barbès or Virtue, it's the full title, by um, Marie-Claude Treyou. But she's this very underseen, under-discussed, uh, you know, female French director. Um, Simone Barbès is, you know, is about the titular Simone Barbès, who is played by Ingrid Bourgan, who was actually someone Marie-Claude had worked with in the theater back when the director was also a theater ticket taker. The film is sort of a triptych. It follows uh, Simone Barbès at her job at a porn theater. Uh, she's sort of an usher with another woman. The second part, she goes to this lesbian nightclub um, where she's trying to get her uh, girlfriend to come home with her. She ultimately doesn't. And then the third part, she's trying to get home after she leaves the nightclub and takes a drive with a random stranger that thinks she's a prostitute, but Simone kind of takes control of the situation and ends up just driving the car and herself home. And so this movie, the reference point that comes to mind is um, uh, Betty Gordon's Variety, which has also been, you know, the subject of reappraisal this year. You know, that movie is about a young woman entering this sphere of male fantasy and and internalizing the danger um, and intrigue that comes with it for her own sexual pleasure. But, you know, Simone Barbès treats these erotic spaces almost like in a more banal manner. It's like there's a sighing quality to it. It's kind of like a post-sexual revolution movie, almost like titillations abound, but Simone Barbès kind of just like grunts her way through the whole thing. She's very... um like, I just want to get through the work day. I just want to go home with my girlfriend. You know, there's this sense of loneliness and just like frustration throughout the whole thing. That's really wonderful. Um, and, you know, it's it's beautifully shot. Yeah. It's it's really, really quite wonderful. Yeah, I, I love it as well. Yeah, Beatrice, you mentioned uh, Chantal Ackerman in the previous movie we were talking about. I thought of that here as well, obviously you know, rendezvous, Donna, or even her own yeah. autobiographical detail that Chantal Ackerman worked in a porn theater. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. And she, didn't she like use the cash to, I think, fund some of her movies or something like that? Yeah. So Simone Bar- Barbez, definitely something we'll be hearing more about. Definitely. Oh, random fun fact to add to our collection. Um, but the actress, um, Inclade Bogan, who, you know, is Simone Barbès, she actually has a cameo in um, A Knife in Heart by Jan Gonzalez. I don't know if anyone's seen that, but it's also like another movie that is set in Paris and is about a porn theater and about mm-hmm. all sorts of things that go bump at night, um, <laughs> which I think is has to be a referencing her role in Simone Barbès in some way um, because she hasn't had that many acting roles. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's Simone Barbès and uh, another movie that is, you know, in the air now, um, but actually not uh, in the New York Film Festival uh, because it mirrored in the Sundance Film Festival earlier in the year on another planet. And on the planet (laughs) we currently dwell on, it's fortunately coming out now. 
Dick Johnson is Dead is by Kristen Johnson, who directed Camera Person, which was one of my favorite films of uh, the decade. There, I said it. And Susanna, I know you saw Dick Johnson and, and you, you like the movie. I mean, for all I know, you saw the guy because that's the other thing about this movie. But I, I'll let you describe it. I wish I saw the guy. Um, but apparently, <laughs> I think he might have been there, which is kind of a spoiler for the movie. But um, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I love this movie. I saw it way back at Sundance and finally got to review it now that it's out. And it's it's so one of a kind. It's an autobiographical documentary, um, which camera person kind of is as well. This is way more direct. It's basically about Kristen Johnson's fear of her father dying now that he's gotten to the age where death is imminent. Um, He's showing signs of Alzheimer's. And she, you know, as any child would do, decides to just stage his death in a number of outlandish scenarios involving elaborate sets, fantasies. Uh, She stages his funeral. People actually come and deliver eulogies and cry. So that's like one half of the film that's kind of like interspersed with a more documentary element, which is just her dialoguing with her father about his life, about his fears of death, about his wife's death you know her mom is captured on screen and camera person so poignantly and she's she expresses you know regret at only getting footage of her at the end of her life when she was pretty much already gone to alzheimer's and so this is very much like you can see the passion and you can see sort of the urge to like capture every single bit of him like both physically and mentally He's such an exuberant person. He is, you can't help but fall in love with this guy. You know, he's like so excited about everything. He seems like an adorable dad. He loves his daughter. He loves his grandkids so much. He's so earnest. He believes in the afterlife. They grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. So like she stages a heaven scene for him where he's just like eating chocolate and being serenaded. And like this man has like, He's like the definition of joie de vivre. And like, (laughs) it's sort of just, it's impossible to imagine him gone, which is sort of where the project comes from. Yeah, he is quite apparently like up for anything, you know, just. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, he's so into it. He's like, he loves to die on screen. And he like, (laughs) he's not like a particularly like great actor, but he's so enthusiastic. Yeah. I really like what you said about that it's impossible to imagine him dead because that really crystallizes the movie for me. I never really thought of it quite like that. The whole movie would be kind of a way of like trying on the kind of clothes of, of dealing with death in a way, mm-hmm. you know, or just kind of what does it feel like? Well, okay, looking at what that would look like or feel like that you can't call it reenactment if it's something that hasn't happened. Right. It's a pre-enactment. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> It's a movie I kind of like more having sat with it for a while. Death is not really dealt with always well or the most healthy way in our country. No, you don't say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, even aside from national disasters, Mm. it's like the one thing that we all somehow are part of like this tacit agreement not to like face. Mm -hmm. Like it's part part of the deal somehow of like keeping on and moving forward. Totally. 
that's also something that's kind of beautiful and just like so meaningfully extravagant about the movie because these moves, these emotions are huge. So this movie should be doing everything it's doing and that feels right and good. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's such a taboo subject and it feels like immersion therapy for, for both of them in a way of just like, instead of ignoring it, we're just going to like face it really aggressively. No euphemisms. Like, cause it's really, I mean, it's the subject of every, you know, movie, every work of art, every, everything we talk about, it's underlying those things, but no one ever actually addresses it this way. And I love how she, a lot of times, you know, you hear people, when people talk to people who are like older and, you know, facing death, it's, it's like, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. We're going to make sure everything's really comfortable for you, blah, blah, blah. But like, she's like, she doesn't negate any of his fears, any of his pain. She asks him these point blank questions that are kind of shocking about his about his death to the point where it, it becomes like funny in a way, which is such a great device to counter the, the sort of fear. I mean, it's, it's a hilarious, it's a hilarious movie. And I cried a million times. So it, it, it's a perfect duality of those those two emotions for me. Yeah. And I also just love the progression to this from Camera Person, which is partly a movie about being the faceless yet very driving creative force to seeing the world, but not being out front in a way. To this, which is very much just kind of, we're putting it all out there uh, and and staging things Mm -hmm. and making scenes. Yeah. And showing, yeah, there's a lot of scenes of like it'll cut right from the fantasy of heaven or what have you. And and then it'll just cut to like the PAs, like, you know, stuffing clouds full of cotton balls together. Like (laughs) it shows it. And it also shows Kristen Johnson as a director, which Mm. is cool. Like she's, it's mostly you hear her voice behind the camera, but it, you know, she steps out and she's like, it shows the hard work of, of being a director, but like she's also being his daughter and like making sure that he's really comfortable throughout these like pretty awkward scenes. So I thought that was cool just seeing like a little bit of the work that mm. behind what she does. Yeah. And and also some of the kind of, you know, there's a bit of a pushing or shoving to, to making art that's kind of necessary, you know, that mm. you're going to have to put people in, in, in situations and and I think maybe there are other movies that um lean more into that maybe there's more I don't want to generalize but you know if I think of something like no home movie you know well yeah the pushing is is the kind of that, that's like very much that's the relationship there but it's, it's a bit of a different relationship I guess mm-hmm. both great autobiographical filmmakers though yeah how about we do one more movie uh, on that same uh, subject or one of the subjects, uh, which is the, the relationship between the father and the daughter. And that would be On the Rocks, which is Sofia Coppola directing her first movie since The Beguiled. Beatrice, you saw On the Rocks. I did. Yeah, actually, you know, Susanna saw Dick Johnson at Sundance. 10 years ago, I watched On the Rocks last (laughs) night on my couch. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, in short, it is about uh, Rashida Jones plays this 
Manhattan mommy type who is also a writer. She's already got the advance on her on her next book, but needs to write the actual book, which proves difficult because she's busy mommying and it turns out worrying about her husband, who's played by Marlon Wayans, um, and these fears she has about her husband's infidelity. He runs some sort of company that's on the up and up and is kind of a workaholic and is spending a lot of time with his team, which is comprised of few people, but uh, in particular, an attractive woman who she thinks he's having an affair with. And so instead of writing, she kind of obsesses over this fact and recruits her zany father, who's played by Bill Murray, for advice. And, you know, he essentially tells her, your husband is a man, he's definitely cheating on you, and has her kind of go all in on investigating whether or not this is true. I have mixed feelings about this movie. Um, On the one hand, there's elements of it that are like, okay, there's clearly sort of a higher power, a filmmaker of talent that's kind of composing some of these uh, elements of this film that doesn't just make it like a throwaway comedy, light comedy type thing. But it's also just kind of feels... I don't know, behind, backwards in a sense. Bill Murray is, you know, this perennial playboy type. And, you know, his shtick is that he cites all these factoids about human civilization to support his claims um, that, you know, men are essentially shitty um, and that like evolutionarily, you know, they're creatures opposed to monogamy and so like you know he spills out facts of that nature all the time he like runs around in an alfa romeo or in a limo wears like ridiculous ascots um and i think he's an art dealer (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know um i think a lot of my skepticism comes from the fact that you know, I'm not exactly a big fan of Bill Murray, and maybe it's my youthful inexperience, but like I never really understood his comedic appeal or the sort of fan base around him. Um, I mean, I did, do think he's a brilliant actor in, in some respects and is singular in many ways, you know, like especially the way he embodies, you know, this boomer curmudgeon type. But I don't know, I like I really just don't find him very funny. Like I, I do like the roles where it almost seems like he's sleeping through his performance, like in the Dead Don't Die from last year. But here, there's like this knowing charisma to his performance that doesn't really vibe with me. Though I understand in a positive light, you know, there's something to to this movie that reminds me kind of of like old school Italian comedies. It's like body and raucous and like he, Bill Murray kind of seems to be at the center of this. So... Like, I understand why he's acting the way he does, but to me, it just kind of contributed to this feeling of the whole thing feeling a bit dated. Mm. I have to ask for more about this, the Bill Murray, because that's really interesting. And I'm Susanna, maybe if you want to share your Bill Murray. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely part of the Murray Hive. Um, <laughs> but not, I mean, lately... It's it's more of like an early it's an early Murray like 
like Tootsie era Mari. Ah, okay. Ah, okay. Yeah. See, I recently watched Groundhog Day, which I think is a very overrated movie. And, you know, he kind of comes off like, like if in Groundhog Day, Bill Murray had never entered that situation and reformed himself, then like you could imagine him decades later being the character that Bill Murray plays in On the Rocks. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. like this kind of, I don't know, womanizer type that is very full of himself. Yeah, Bill Murray is like... I guess the turning point, like the latest phase was like Broken Flowers or something. Uh. And and that's where, oh, the novelty of a comedic actor is suddenly having some, <laughs> you know, unforeseen pathos and depth of, of existential profundity, which I, you know, I, I like those movies a lot. And I like Bill Murray. I think in this one, I agree. He's not actually that appealing. I mean, he definitely is not afraid to play up the boomerish side. I love Somewhere, you know, another movie that's about this father-daughter relationship, a kind of also gallivanting kind of father whose attention you're trying to, you know, I'm kind of sensing a theme here. <laughs> and this one, it's very much in a different mold, very lighter, much lighter. And yeah, Murray is filling a more conventional role. I, I do still feel like he has enough of like wiggle room that he leaves in there that makes it more interesting than mm. um, I don't know what other actors might bring to it. But the movie as a whole just kind of gets deflated. It's like playing this like keep away from you for like half of the movie and they don't even give much of a character to, to the husband anyway. So it's like, who even cares? <laughs> and and I, Rashida Jones, I, I generally like, but I felt was a, a little too much put in the role of the straight person kind of thing mm. to react to things, which she's terrific at, but there's just a limit to some of it. Yeah. Yeah, I... Like, I understand why Rashida Jones is in a lot of different type of types of comedies and stuff like that. But like, personally, I think she tends to like suck the charisma out of the room. Um, <laughs> like, she's just <laughs> like, I don't know. I, okay, in this, at the very least, I think she's a good pick as this like sort of Sofia Coppola stand-in, you know, and she's very good at radiating this like anxiety and fatigue she looks very anxious, um, but, you know, and this is kind of like both an insult and a strength of her performance, but Bill Murray really completely overshadows her and the filmmaking, their formal choices really reaffirm that even in like the way that they're shot in relation to each other. Like he very much is this big influence over her yeah. and, you know, she can't help but allow his big personality to kind of steer her kind of blank slate mind like literal blank slate she's like trying to write this book and like she looks at a blank page (laughs) and then what fills it in is literally bill murray's just like insaneness (laughs) it's true i mean even in the blocking i get that part of that is the point she just is kind of receding a little more and i mean that's something that she's kind of been artful about uh sophia copeland in her movies i think is that that sense of just the kind of chill hangout for some of the characters, you know? I mean, I, I really love Sofia Coppola. I am a big fan of a lot of her movies and I think she's a very, just like, she's a really cool filmmaker. Like she literally, I mean, you you think of something like the Virgin Suicides or Marie Antoinette and it's like 
Tumblr, like, you know, urban outfitters culture that like the teens have adopted as their own vision of aesthetically, like what's cool and and pleasing. And this movie is just, it's like not cool at all, (laughs) which just seems so contrary to what I expect from her. And, you know, there's much more substantial reasons for that beyond this like aesthetic aspect that, that I was talking about. But I don't know, it's just... It's fine. It's light. It's not terribly offensive, but I tend to be excited about Sofia Coppola movies and this just didn't really excite me even before I saw it. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It is kind of like a New York urbanity, a picture of New York urbanity that just seems like neither here nor there. Yeah. I don't know. As a, whatever, as a lifelong New Yorker, I was not necessarily excited by this movie and I'm usually pushover. There are so many things that are very like, this is a wealthy New Yorker's life. We're going to recreate it. Like expensive childcare lessons, like this, like mommy circles where they're like doing lessons. Does it seem to comment on that? I mean, there's all this wealthy New York stuff. Like Rashida Jones is, has all of these Paris reviews everywhere, wears Paris review <laughs> shirts. They live in like an amazing house. Her family's extremely wealthy. I feel like the only part it comments on when it comments on all that is like there's this part when Bill Murray's driving around in the Alfa Romeo and he gets pulled over by a cop and pretty much talks his way out of it because he knows the cop's father and like the cop just can't help but kind of admire Bill Murray's, you know, he's so fucking cool and he just kind of lets him off the hook. And, you know, obviously, you know, being pulled over and just being let off in that way, there's definitely sort of winking commentary in that, considering all the things that have gone on this year and historically in America. (laughs) But, um, but beyond that, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a scene that definitely lands differently. I mean, I think she is kind of fed up with her dad at the same time, to a certain extent. And yeah, I mean, Sofia Coppola's never been, she's unapologetic about the millions that she she shoots, you know. I mean, you know, so is Joanna Hogg, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of part of the subject mm-hmm. of the souvenir is what can I represent? What should I represent, you know? And Susanna, you asked whether it's commenting also on like the New York aspect. I mean, she has, Jenny Slate plays her friend as just this insufferably self-absorbed, you know, uh, parent at the school who does not let her get a word in edgewise and is constantly like narrating her love life in a way that is constantly self-justifying and just Mm. using this like self-help jargon. So there's that aspect. I mean, at the same time, I don't know, people live like this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny because like, you know, what I've heard or, you know, the positive, like, wow, really brings me back to my like raucous days of going out to bars and living the life in New York, blah, blah, blah. Like it really, really that you've read that in a review. (laughs) I've heard, heard, you know, yeah, like it, it feels like, you know, the, the night out on the town that we all are missing. And I'm like, all of what you described sounds like exactly what I'm not missing right now (laughs) deal with those people you know like I'm I'm so I just realized how much I didn't miss them yeah I don't know I think it's a movie also I'm glad we 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 talked about it openly uh because it's (laughs) it's just a movie like it's I think it should be okay to like not be okay with someone's latest movie totally 
yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I'm feeling like a lot of movies kind of getting passes, partly because we're all like, ah, humans. I, know. I like, I like human beings. We there want to they be are on the screen. Right. We want to be excited about the new movie from like the new director that everyone loves or the director yeah. that everyone loves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so yeah. Uh, Suzanne, did you want to just talk about some of the 1970s movies you've been uh, dipping into? Yeah. Well, segue. I was really good about New York Film Festival for like the first week or so. And then due to just like some stressful things, like a move going on in my life, I just kind of have devolved and completely just been watching the 70s horror on Criterion, which just feels a little more comforting to me right now. And specifically, I completely fell in love with Daughters of Darkness, which is 1971 film from a Belgian director named Harry Kumel. And it stars Delphine Serig as basically a vampire, but it's <laughs> it's pretty subtle about it. Like it's it's not there's little hints throughout that like she may want to suck your blood, but like there's no fangs, there's no like, you know, <laughs> crazy accent or anything. Um it's really just like a moody film about like a really sexy couple that is on their honeymoon and just sort of gets like taken up by they basically get glamored by her and you know it's mostly also just about her costumes like there's lots of fur and there's lots of leather and there's lots of like shimmery rhinestone dresses I mean it's sort of like just always wonderful to watch Delphine Sarig wander through like hotels which is what she does in this movie um and it feels like you know last year at marion bad but raunchier more 70s version of that um and it was like the most comforting thing i've watched in a while so (laughs) highly recommend that i will definitely be watching it sexy vampires fashion sounds exactly what i want to watch right now (laughs) right (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, a little decadence seems to be a good good uh, prescription. <laughs> God, I was just what's the year on that? Is that It's 71. Yeah, she has quite a career. I mean, that was sort of a formative retrospective for me in year redacted. Uh, MoMA did of Delphine Seyrig. <laughs> oh. They showed so many of her movies just like, uh, yeah, last year at Marion, but Muriel I I'm trying to remember if they showed Daughters of Darkness cuz I didn't see it then, but just that was sort of um very revealing to me. And then there was a documentary recently. It talks about a video collective um, that she supported, which I recommend seeking out. But mm-hmm. I think that brings us to the end of our discussion. That again was Daughters of Darkness. We'll uh, we'll leave it at that. Next week we'll be back with more uh, recent movies. But uh, Beatrice and Susanna, thank you so much for your time and your brilliance. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so yes. much. Great to Wonderful. talk to you guys. Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. We're going to start with a little bit of talk about what the issues facing the movie industry are right now, especially as might relate to the movies you may or may not end up seeing. I'm very pleased to be joined with 
joined with, as if we're Siamese twins, to be joined, joined by Eric Hines. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's no surprise, it's no newsflash that the, the upheaval has just been extraordinary uh, in terms of uh, film exhibition. And that's something you're pretty intimately familiar with, since you're the curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image, which means you, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about booking and having to game things out and plan both long-term and short-term and, and juggle calendars and, and all of that. So this must be just generally uh, an interesting time for you. Interesting at the least. Hearing you describe that element of, of the job, I'm you know, aware of you know, the Google calendars uh, of plans, both set in stone once upon a time or for further in the, in the future, as you say, and have the actual calendar lapping those plans all the time and having <laughs> Google, Google reminders of screenings that were supposed to happen you know, back in April and then in June and July and August. Um, and, it, and it keeps going. And so, yeah, now we're definitely into that territory of longer term thinking. And to see that played out nationally and internationally, of course, you know, all those dates that had originally been set before March and how those dates then changed and then have like the, the dates that had changed change again. And and then there are other films that we all know were supposed to come out in 2020 where no new date has even been provided. What happens to a, to a film that was about to come out and then has no set plan for coming out? And even the ones that have announced plans for 2021, will, will we even hit those targets anymore? It, it definitely puts things into significant disarray. Yeah, and I mean, many listeners are, are probably familiar with the cliffhanger known as the release plans for Tenet. Um, which, you know, seemed to have been more exciting for many people than the movie itself. But that, you know, has basically been something that's spooked, uh, you know, studio after studio. I'm not a person who generally, you know, likes to spend a lot of time talking about box office. But what happens is that it just has this trickle-down effect combined with, you know, obviously the effects of the pandemic um, on policy and particularly our, our governor's approach to movie theaters in the state, which is a very conservative one. And that is relevant because New York theaters, you know, uh, as many listeners know, are the launching pads for movies of all size. So that, that affects art houses throughout the country a, as well. It's just gone on from there, the, the, the slow litany of movies just kind of excusing themselves from the fall calendars. Soul, uh, which was a is, uh, presumably, it's sitting on whatever Hollywood hard drive it is. Uh, Soul is a, a Pixar film. It seemed kind of intriguing to me. I've been kind of wondering what, what exactly it would be like. But those are no more for theatrical in the full. There's also just the fact of the theaters themselves giving up the ghost for the full. And one major one uh, has been uh, the Regal Cinemas and the parent company being Cineworld. And Cineworld has closed theaters because of these shifted release dates of these giant tentpole films, you know, that's the sort of domino effect thing that then then you fear happening. It's it's a sincerely tough time in so many ways, but it's also a really fascinating one because the pandemic in particular as a challenge facing an industry has led us to do these kind of somersaults of priorities and arguments for or against certain things. The tenant date shift um, became you know, ultimately a joke on Christopher Nolan because there's a sort of fanboy quality to um, those who care about his his films. And so there's a certain degree of snark that greets any news involving anything involved with Christopher Nolan. 
The tough thing is, though, like, on one hand, the fact that an entire industry could live or die according to a Christopher Nolan film uh, is something that is worthy of some scorn and scrutiny. On the other hand, since when are we going to argue against the idea that a filmmaker thinks that his film should play in theaters? You know? Right. Everything seems a little bit backwards and upside down. And so, like, from where I'm standing in terms of the films that I show and the theater that I program, am I bemoaning a lack of regal cinemas? Not necessarily. You know, it's been a long time probably since I spent any time um, regularly going to a regal cinema. That said, the fact that people could be losing jobs, that the industry, there's a ripple effect in terms of what that means in terms of production and exhibition and, and behavior. And what that could mean for an organization like mine in terms of prioritizing of the theatrical experience, in terms of funding, in terms of, you know, is, is this a situation where those who stand, those who remain open, benefit from this in some way for the near term in terms of there are going to be films that need to be shown and there are going to be theaters that want to stay open and people are going to see films in theaters. So therefore, things kind of find, they, they settle in in some way in the, in the interim. possibly, but. You know, and, and that would be okay. And that if that happened for my organization, or if that happened for others, where that meant that people were going to see art cinema instead, um, or they were more willing to take a chance, then so be it. And I, I, I hate the idea that, that people are losing their jobs in any respect. And I absolutely despise the idea that the government hasn't looked after these essential industries that are suffering like this and that really have no alternative but to close, I think. Or I shouldn't say, well, it's, you can't argue against the, the logic of closing for some of these organizations. The, the fact that the, the, there's no help there is unconscionable, I think. And it's certainly not just a situation in cinemas. It's a puzzle that, that is constantly missing a piece, basically. There's always too many variables to, to, to solve. In terms of New York with Cuomo, um, what's this one-size-fits-all treatment of movie theaters and the equating of movie theaters as on par with live venues, etc., makes it impossible for those of us who are willing to do the extra work to make the space safe and to present things that we think could attract an audience even during a time like now and and I think that, you know, there was a letter signed by some independent cinema curators and ex- exhibitors uh, a couple weeks ago that basically was appealing for that very thing. Like, give us the guidelines, tell us what's required, and we will do it. And I think that inability is deeply frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's hard to look for a, a bright side in all this. But I mean, there has been one aspect that has been a source of innovation in a way. And, and that's been uh, the return of the drive-in which you've been yourself programming. Uh, and it's one of these cases of where you have what seemed almost like a, an archaic form for showing movies uh, turns out to be exactly the thing that you can, you can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then you end up being able to reinvent it. And I, I just like also how it gets a new sense of, of the culture that's possible too. Yeah. So, I mean, well, so it's the it's the Queens Drive-In, um, and it's a, a, a alliance of three nonprofits in New York: Rooftop Films, New York Hall of Science, and Museum of the Moving Image. And it originated with Rooftop Films, which is a long time, over twenty year exhibitor, you know, like roving outdoor cinema presenter, uh, and so they're great at it. They've been thinking about this for months during the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, wound up having a conversation with them spurred on by Cuomo, basically saying this is one of the first legal things that you could do is run a drive-in. You could present films in a drive-in space. 
I, I would say the thing that makes me happiest um, and most optimistic is that there's no doubt that people want to leave the house and go see a movie. It could not be more apparent that people are, are really, really eager to do that. You know, and the fact that the, there's this limitation of you really have to be in a car to come. But that said, you know, we have a capacity of, you know, when it's really full, it's about 200 cars, which is a lot of cars. And that's a lot of people. Um, and we've done that. And we've had screenings where that many people have come out. And sometimes that's films that they can see in another form. They can see it streaming. And the fact that they still would pay money and drive, people are eager for it. Yeah. But the other thing about drive-ins, they're not cheap. You know, mm. a lot of people and it's a lot to make it work and it's a lot to make it work effectively. It's fun to experiment. Your margins are such that you can't run a drive-in for a night and have nobody show up. Right. And I think that for art houses or throughout the city, like there are moments where you know that you're not going to get a big turnout, but it's worth it because the rest of the screens will hopefully pick up from there. You know, it's a little bit scarier with drive-ins. Yeah. Just pulling the camera back a bit for the fall. I mean, I'm kind of hoping that people might experiment more generally and also that the landscape might allow that just because there maybe are fewer of the traditional movies, whether they're prestige movies or whatever you want to call it, or simply these studio tentpoles, uh, fewer of those just kind of taking up all the oxygen in the room, yeah. all the, atten the attention and kind of setting the beat of the march for everyone else. And then everyone else kind of has to pick up the crumbs of attention from just to mix about 10 metaphors there. Uh, <laughs> for example, a, a movie like Time, uh, directed by Garrett Bradley, uh, which is put out by Amazon, admittedly, but uh, is still, you know, not a movie that necessarily would get uh, a huge amount of attention. But but I, I like that, that, that it is, you know, I like that it's getting the Times Magazine feature treatment. Time's an extraordinary film. Uh, I'm so glad that Amazon is behind it because they have some resources to get folks to see it, hopefully. And I, I, I feel the same. I, I actually think that there is an opportunity for, um, we're always going to be interested in the new. We're always going to be attracted to the new. And I think that being a little creative about this and in terms of marketing, um, in terms of messaging and convincing the newspapers and magazines, as you're saying, like to get that kind of treatment, let's, let's take advantage of it. Let's make that happen. You know, if there's not going to be that big tent pole sucking up all the oxygen in the room, um, then then where else that might that oxygen go? You know, yeah. ideally, we'd be in a situation where movie theaters, art houses, or at the very least, drive-ins can be marshaled to to take advantage of that, you know, to basically say, this is what we've got. And this is the new thing. And it's really great. And maybe since there's not even a box office report to look at, to kind of, again, take up oxygen with whether or not other people who are not us are making a lot of money, maybe we can start looking at films from a different perspective. And then maybe the audience won't care the difference either. You know, um, the audience is just allowed to come to the film because they hear it's good. Yeah. Anyway, so we're talking about time, which will be seen on, on Amazon. But the, the, the truth of the matter is, is these companies, these streamers, especially in 2019 came around to the idea that the theatrical presentation had some real value, um, whether that was a theatrical engagement or whether it was special events or a series of events over the course of, of a season. Um, yeah, maybe that's for Oscar potential. Um, but I think it also was just realizing that, that people will show up um, and that there's real value there in terms of what the filmmakers want and, and, and in terms of what the audience want in terms of 
there people will want will, may prefer to see it in those spaces. I don't think again, I don't think that's going to go away. I think that that's a recognition of human behavior and the ways that certain people who care about film and love film how they prefer to see good work. Uh, and so I think that getting through this season uh, is actually going to be really hard for even the streamers because everything's gotten flattened out. Everything is streaming. Everything is online. And if everything's online, how do you actually get more attention to the thing that you want to give that extra bit of attention to? Yeah. You, you might have an interesting movie that isn't able to really come to the fore. Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly how well uh, it did, but a movie like Sybil, for example, uh, which is in some ways a, a movie that you, you'd think people would be uh, curious about. And I have to say that movie kind of slipped through the <laughs> slipped through the cracks uh, in, in, in September. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that can happen too. And then next week you have Martin Eden, basically about, uh, you know, a, a writer. It, it makes a kind of saga out of his life. It's a film that I, I, I want to push people to, to see, um, but you, you also have worries that that won't always work. I want to come back to one quickly, one thing you said, which is that the box office horse race that just trained generations since the late 80s, early 90s, to just look at what the number one, two, three box up. It seeps into everything more than people even uh, become aware. Uh, so just having that off the table because movies are not making them out of money, you're absolutely right. That that hopefully opens up something. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, I, if, if we're no lo- if we're not looking at box office reports and and streamers aren't even sharing their numbers and they haven't for for years now, it's sort of meaningless at this point. And so whether it's the editors or, or whoever else is determining what is newsworthy or what's worth, worthy of that attention. And if we're not looking at those numbers anymore, we're only looking at what our audience might want to see. I'm thinking as programmers now, but then also like when it comes to press, what your readership might want to read about, you know, that that's going to often lead you into what you think is going to be popular because that's the number of people who have a chance to, to have seen what's being written about. But there's a lot of like, wagging the dog such stuff here Mm. if something gets programmed and the audience comes out for it traditionally that is the slow release right that's the slow release strategy where something plays in a few theaters the word is strong the reviews are strong and then it can grow and then it can make its way around the country that becomes so hard these days because basically the pitch is dead in the water right if it's not a big enough distributor if it doesn't have big enough stars and if it's not projected to get a certain amount of box office, there's certain theaters that aren't going to book it and there's newspapers that aren't going to cover it. It would be interesting if this moment with multiplexes closing, maybe it's a moment where we can sort of turn it upside down again, you know, or, or turn it right side up, I should say. Like, like, let's start with what's good. Let's start with what buzz is strong based on actual seeing the thing rather than just what's been fed to you by successful marketing campaigns and see what happens there. Like, I'd like to see that. It may take a little bit of time for us to recover as an industry, period. So the idea that it might take a little bit of time to develop relationships with audiences and with readerships in a new fashion, things are going to take time anyway. So maybe we should give it a shot. Yeah. If we can get to a spot where people can become accustomed to a, to a different way of looking at, at movies and a different frame of mind, I, I think that'll be for the best. On a lighter note, a game that I play with myself to retrospectively feel a little bit of glee over is uh, thinking of some of the worst films in recent years that have major stars in them 
or were kind of positioned to be a major deal, but then were, you know, big stinkers. And I <laughs> look back to see what major coverage it got as if it was the big deal, as if it was the important story to be told about film on that given week. And inevitably, inevitably, it's there. <laughs> inevitably, there's a big old profile about those people pegged to this film that immediately vanished off of the face of the earth because it was atrocious. And that warms my heart in this particular respect. Because I think exactly you chased after the wrong thing. You chased after what you thought, you know, like everything was telling you this was money. And then it, there was no money there. And so the thing that you, you sort of propped it up with, with cultural coverage and, and paid for it. I do that for this gallows fun, but I do think that there's something to that that's sort of a, a bit of a corrective. Like, we don't need to do that. There was nothing to be gained from that. Yeah, I support that <laughs> slightly uh, gloating look look back because it, it, it's, it's instructive. It's, it's really, and how are we ever going to learn how to do things differently? Here's to here's to you know new and different movies um, on 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 the on the radar for, for for people on some screen somewhere, ideally on a big one, if we're allowed to, to to visit them. Yes, absolutely. All right, well, let's wrap up there um, again with Eric Hines of the Museum of the Moving Image, um, who is actually doing this fresh off uh, actually handling a, a, a drive-in screening. So we, we get you fresh from, from the trenches. <laughs> Next time I'll do it from the field. From the field. That's good. All right. Well, until then, uh, thank you again. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Nick.